Good morning. This is Pastor Todd. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. This week, I am sharing a message for the church. I trust the Lord uses it to encourage and build you up. And here is this week's message. All right, so, yep, we're starting off a series in Nehemiah. A little uh, fun trivia fact for the history of the Gathering Place. Last time we did Nehemiah was just over four years ago, and then we got this building. So, <laughs> uh, so we we had to like get get into like building things. But Nehemiah, like when we when we look at it, and I'm going to get into some some historical context as well because that's what I do. It really ties things into understanding what's going on. Is that it's not you can take the applications of Nehemiah more than just building a building, building a wall making a church initiative. There are also things that speak to like how we can look at major changes in our lives and how we partner with the Lord through those changes and getting to the next step that the Lord's calling us to. So with that, I'll open us up in prayer and uh, we'll get into it. So dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you even make sermon prep a possibility, Lord, that, that you open up avenues for that, that you, that you move in the minds and the hearts of teachers to put those together and to speak your heart and that you anoint things with your Holy Spirit. And so now here today, Father, I ask that you would anoint me to speak your heart uh, out of Nehemiah and that you would open our ears to hear what you would say to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, Twyla, you're going to have to do a little bit of a more diligent duty because I didn't write down the slide numbers, so you have to follow along. <clears throat> so in our lives, we are often faced with major challenges or changes. And for those of us that have become Christians from a non-Christian background, because that's what I can speak from, we can identify the difficulties and the opposition that we face when we come to faith. There are voices that say it'll just be a momentary experience. Just wait, we'll go back to the way that we were. Or we'll have old friends that will celebrate when we first come to faith, saying, oh, that's a good thing, until we stop having those outings with them that we used to have. And then it turns to something else. And there may have been those who were outright hostile to our beliefs. And one of the core elements of remaining faithful to God is that perseverance, is that persistence in the midst of all of that. To keep God in His ways as our true north, right, as our compass, which is tantamount to overcoming the voices and the actions of opposition directed towards us. So in our series on Nehemiah, we will see Nehemiah's example of faithful persistence and dedication to the Lord, and following through on what the Lord has put on Nehemiah's heart. So, if you've read Nehemiah then in the past, and you, you kind of know what's going on, we always talk about Nehemiah builds the wall. That was like his main mission, is to restore the wall of Jerusalem that had been torn down. So, where does that fit kind of in world history and in Israel's history? <clears throat> So we'll do a, a really quick rundown of the history so we get to see what's going on there. So in 586 B.C., we have what is known as the Babylonian captivity. 
All right, this is where the last two remaining tribes of Israel are pulled out of the Holy Land uh, by the Babylonian emperor and relocated somewhere else in Babylon. That's 586 B.C. We've already lost the other ten tribes through the Assyrian exile 200 years or 150 years before. So this is the last remnants of people being pulled out of the Holy Land and put somewhere else. So that's 586 B.C. That's under, mostly, mostly under uh, Nebuchadnezzar. You know, and then you see like, a, like Daniel kind of rising up around the Nebuchadnezzar era. And then, about 50 years later, you get Cyrus the Great gives the initial permission for the Jews to return to their holy land and start rebuilding their temple. So, and that's kind of like the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. So 586, last remaining people pulled out. Cyrus the Great in 538 lets people start going back in. 20 years after that is the completion of the second temple because they destroyed Solomon's temple. So they rebuild a second temple in 516 under Emperor Darius I. Then we have Emperor Artaxerxes who rules from five, or 465 to 424 B.C. Artaxerxes, uh, our main king that we look at in this book, is the third-born son of Xerxes I. Xerxes I is the husband of Esther, if you guys remember the book of Esther. Or if you've seen the movie 300, Xerxes is the one that tried to take over Sparta, right? This is Sparta! <laughs> right, and he kicks the guy in the well, which is actually in the historical records. Just, he doesn't yell this is Sparta, but he does kick the guy in the well. Um, so... So Xerxes tries to take over Sparta, right? He's the same one that marries Esther. His third son is Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the one who sets up Nehemiah as his cupbearer. So that's the guy we're talking about. So Israel's been pulled out, boom. We're looking at 400 years, or not 400, about 100 years from that exile to Nehemiah coming on the stage. Give or take a few years. Now Nehemiah starts this mission to build the wall in Artaxerxes' 20th year. So 445 B.C., he goes to build the wall. Now, Nehemiah is what was known as the cupbearer of uh, the king, which means, like, historically, that position is any food that comes before the king, Nehemiah has to taste it first to make sure it's not poisoned. Has to drink the cup, has to eat the strawberry, so on and so forth, to make sure the food's not poisoned. And so his life is the one that, that goes on the line to save Artaxerxes every time he sits down for a meal. And so at this point, Artaxerxes, we don't know how long Nehemiah has been this uh, position, but he's been there long enough that Xerxes is really, really trusts Nehemiah. In some sense, like some people have stated that like Nehemiah might have also been a bit of a friend to him. Uh, because of this, this close relationship that he's constantly putting his life on the line to save the king. And so in, in this duty, he's always sitting at the dinner table with all the dignitaries that come in. So he sees how the court operates. He sees how the king does his business. He sees how the protocol works whenever a, a satrap, which would be a governor, would come up and make a request of things. He knows how this court works. And he also kind of has the inner ear of Artaxerxes because he's such a trusted servant. So he's not just a slave 
who has to drink the cup, he's in an esteemed position and he gets to see how things work and he has some rapport with the king. That's, that's the background, right? So Nehemiah's people are trying to rebuild their life and they've, they've, they've been trying to rebuild that for several emperors at this point through two regime changes at least. Um, and Nehemiah's on the scene and he, he has some friends from Jerusalem that come to visit and he asks what's going on. So that's where we're going to start. I'm going to do a little passage from chapter 1, and then we're going to do all 20 verses of chapter 2 because it's all important, and then we're going to get into breaking it down. So Nehemiah 1 says, in the, months of, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, while I was in the citadel of Susa, which is the capital of Xerxes' capital, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So what's happening here is that, yeah, they were able to go back. They were able to start reestablishing residence in Jerusalem. They were able to start building the temple, but they were never able to rebuild the protective wall against it. In the ancient world, if you didn't have a wall, you were subject to invasion any time. Like any neighboring uh, city or, or state could come in, just raid your city, steal your children, turn them into slaves or worse, and just devastate everything. You had no defensive measures whatsoever. And that's where Israel's face. Like, yeah, they were allowed to go back. Yes, they were allowed to build a temple. But there's no protection. And so they're under constant threat of invasion, of manipulation, of being extorted, because there's no defense. There's no recourse. And we'll find out later on that because of that, you end up getting corrupt leaders in the town that, that do uh, shady business with the other city-states. So that's what's going on. And so Nehemiah hears this, and he, he's, moved. He's, he's moved to sorrow for how tenuous his people's situation is. So then the rest of chapter 1 is a long prayer, so we're, I'm not going to get into that. We're going to move uh, into chapter 2 when he has uh, an encounter with the king because of it. So in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine... You know, he sips it and gives it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. Because usually when you're in the king's presence, you want to have a cheery demeanor. You want to be in a good mood. You don't want to bring the king's mood down. That's basically the rule. Because I'd never been sad before the king. So the king asked me, why does your face look sad when you're not ill? And this, show, this shows Artaxerxes like, a little bit of like in, intuition. He, he kind of sees something's up, right? He says, this can be nothing but sadness of the heart. So Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. Because, I mean, that could mean his life. Like if you bring the king's mood down, he could just chop his head off, get somebody else. So he, he took a big risk in, in being sad before the king. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? And his gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king said to me, What is it that you want? 
So here Nehemiah is kind of like born his sorrow to the king, kind of unduly, but like he's got enough rapport that he did it, even though it was like it could mean his life, right? And the king has such high esteem for Nehemiah, he goes, what do you want me to do about it? What, what do you want? So, so I, I'm taking at this point that he, he probably took some time. He's like, give me some time to, to gather my thoughts. Because it says, then I prayed to God, to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters of the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct, so I need safe travel, right, uh, until I arrive at Jerusalem. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. He sent an armed guard so that when he traveled, he was protected. So Xerxes is really taking care of Nehemiah. Then when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, are heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I told I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Israel. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So he goes out at night when nobody's watching. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal, the jackal well and the dung gate. They, they really changed the names after this whole thing was dev devastated. <clears throat> Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mounts to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. When we, when we, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So that's chapter 2. Nehemiah gets the bad report, goes sad before the king, king asks about it, Nehemiah explains, king says, what do you want? Nehemiah says, this, 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 and this. 
king says, all right, be on your way, go do it. He goes and he examines it, and he faces his first level of confrontation. So that's a basic synergy uh, summary of, uh, of chapter 2. So let's, let's break that down and look at it in our own lives, what Nehemiah does. So in verses 1 through 4, Nehemiah is honest with his situation and his self. His people are in dire straits. They're in a very tenuous situation. He's honest with that. He's honest with that in himself. He is moved to sorrow, and he shows that before the king. So there's this, this honest facing of what the reality shows. Nehemiah made a bold move approaching the king with a sad face, so that he was afraid. And when asked, Nehemiah explained, and the king responded. This is one of those things, like for us, like if we're going to look at building a building back here, we need to look at what the real situation is, right? Like, like what are the finances? What is the building material? What are we going to need to get this done? What is the vision that God is casting? And where are we in terms of the ability to do that or inability to do that, where we need God to come in and move in a supernatural way, right? Likewise, in our own life, when we're facing something difficult, like we, I, I know people that, that really struggle with addictions, with the struggle with alcohol, with struggle with drugs. And so the first thing is, you know, just like, like AA says, first step is, is uh, to get past denial, right? Because if you say you don't have a problem, you're never going to work on it. Well, it's being honest with your situation, no matter what it is. You might, you might be in a financial situation. You might be looking for a job. You might be having some health issues. Whatever it is, being honest with where you are in it is one of the first steps, is, 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 is dealing with that, so that you, you basically you, you take an inventory of your status. Uh, and so that's what Nehemiah does. He takes an inventory of, of what's going to need, like, like a big picture, like what the issue is, what needs to be done. So Nehemiah takes this honesty with himself before he approaches the king. And that's what we can do when we look at our situations and say, oh, man, why am I so stressed? And you start pulling and you start pinpointing the, the stressors, right? And then you can start going to the Lord and articulating what the issue is, being honest with that instead of tucking it under denial. Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's okay. No, no. If it's not okay, be honest. It is not okay. So for us in our to-dos, we can't be afraid of the results or the report. The results or the report that we get is, is not to destroy us or to, to make us despondent. It's to give us an honest assessment of where we're at so that we can start taking the corrective measures for it. So don't be afraid of the results or the report. We brace ourselves and we learn how to be able to, we learn to, be able to articulate the problem or the concern. So we use the words, we articulate it, we make that concern to the relevant people, we make that concern known to the Lord. And then you assess the situation, you count the cost, right? Jesus talks about the king doesn't go and, and try to raise up an army to go send off to war if he doesn't know what the strength of the enemy is. Like, you've got to count that cost. So you have to assess the situation, you count the cost, what's this going to cost? And then you articulate the extent of your needs. So that's the first thing that we can do is we, we are honest with, with the assessment, we count the cost, we articulate it. You know, I think as James it says, uh, make your requests made known to the Lord and he'll answer. And I know the context says asking for wisdom, right? And he goes on to say, you have not because you ask not. 
That can apply to a lot of things. Whatever it is, you make your request known to the Lord. Actually, the make your request known to the Lord is Philippians. I just misspoke, so sorry about that. So that's what we do. We look at the situation. Whatever the report is, good, bad, just honest assessment, count the cost, go to the Lord. You know, in this instance, Joshua goes to, or Nehemiah goes to the king. Next thing that Nehemiah does, once he gets into the field, is he determines the scope of the task and to calculate what's needed. So you got the report, you've done the assessment, you count the cost, now you get into the nitty-gritty, right? What are, the, what are the steps? What do we need to do? What needs to be done? And so what he does, this is verses 5 through 9, he's precise in his needs to the king. How long will it take? He gives a time frame. It should take X, Y, and Z, right? So we, we look at the time frame. We set a goal. What materials are going to be needed? Like, what's it going to take to build a wall? Well, he's going to need lumber to build the gates. He's going to need stones. He's going to need uh, tons of stuff to build. What, what's the material? What's the cost? What's the labor that's going to be needed? How much is it going to cost? What is the money that's going to be needed? So he spells all this out for the king before he even takes off on the adventure. Right? I think there's a lot of times where, where we have a big vision for what God wants to do, and then we don't calculate the cost and it never gets done because we don't go to the Lord and say, okay, this is what's needed. Like we know he knows, but it's a part of responsibility on, on our behalf to really know what, what needs to happen and, and what we need to do, right? So this needs to be done, this needs to be done, this needs to be Even if it's beyond our ability to do it, even if it's beyond the scope of, of human capability, being honest with what needs to be done allows us to articulate that to the Lord so that we can ask those specifics for that to be met. So we determine that scope, what is entailed. So we can give, we, this is our to-dos for this, give the fullest report possible for what needs to be done, whatever it is. If it's, if it's getting over an addiction, if it's getting our finances in order, if it's rebuilding our spiritual life because we're falling out of uh, the habits of spiritual disciplines, or if it's building a building, right? We got to get the fullest report possible for the task and what it's going to take to accomplish it, even if it's beyond our ability, because then we can start reaching out. We know where we need to pinpoint our, our shortcomings and, and seek the Lord to bring that supplement. And then, sorry, I did double-sided this time around, so sorry about that. <clears throat> then then we, we, we do a little bit further of assessment. Sorry. So Nehemiah, he, he does this initial assessment with the king while he's in Susa. Then he goes to Jerusalem. And he just he goes by stealth of night. He doesn't want to tell anybody what's going on yet, right? So he goes around and he does an assessment at night. Assess the situation. So this is verses 11 through 16. Look at everything that needs to be done. You need to account for this. Take note of the specifics. And then you let the relevant people know of your assessment. Nehemiah went and did this in secret. But then once he had gathered his, his reconnaissance, gathered his report, he goes to the people that would be helping with this and spells out the assessment. Look, I've looked at these walls. I've looked at the dung gates. I've looked at the king's pool. This is the honest assessment. This is not in a good area. Let's do something about it, is what he tells them. Let's do something about it. And they say, yes, let's do something about it. Let's build this wall. Let's build this. Looking at the full scope, note the specifics, tell the relevant people, right? In our lives, 
Like we don't get victory over victory over victory because we're doing it ourselves or we're some lone wolf that's just me and Jesus doing this, right? Like the scripture calls us to be together in community because we're, we're there to have each other's backs. Scripture talks about bearing one another's burdens. And so if we do that as a group, right, if we make these, these issues known, we have people that can come alongside us and help build us up. And so we put our effort into it, other people put their effort into it, and then God comes along and adds that supernatural element that even where a whole group of people couldn't do something in unison, the Spirit of God can make things possible. And so this happens, and Nehemiah starts seeing this. So what do we do? When we're approaching a difficult thing, it's important to note what needs to be done, identify it, and also this is what we want to do. We want to identify those things that we can manage and that we can influence, and those things that are completely beyond our ability to manage and influence. Because that's, that's God territory right there. And the issue I think we have a lot of failure is that we try to do the God territory, and we try to neglect our own territory. And so we do what we're called to do, because our hands are, are to put to a plow, right? We're supposed to do stuff just not needlessly and just not by trying to earn God's favor. There's still a lot of diligent work to do for the kingdom of heaven. And there's things that, that God empowers us to do, and then there's things that God does. And to be able to, to have that wisdom to notice the difference. Nehemiah does that. He sees what needs to happen. He, needs, he knows what he can do. He needs to know what his people can do. And then he needs to know what God's going to do. And that's why he, he tells the report to, to Sanballat and those other guys, the God of heaven will give us success. Basically, we're going to do the part he calls us to do. And he's going to do his part. And it's going to be successful. And you guys ain't going to be a part of that. Because you're not part of the Jewish community. You guys are mocking us. You're you're out. You're done. You have no influence of this. You have no say in this. And we see that that doesn't rest well with them very well later on, but that's for another Sunday. Then, so Nehemiah's done the assessment, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing as we go through this, right? Nehemiah does the assessment. Nehemiah tells the relevant people, kind of starts getting them on board, and then he casts the vision, right? And there's that whole thing, without a, without a vision, the people perish, you can slice and dice that. You can do a whole message on what that means. We're not going to do that today. He gives them an idea of what things can be to get them on board. That's, that's vision casting. Like Byron says 5,000 square foot building in the back. There's the vision, right? Now, now we've got to work on the nitty-gritty. What's that going to cost? What's the material? How, how, how much is it going to cost the architect to do that, right? We do the assessment, and, you know, it's probably going to be over a million dollars to do that. I mean, just, just honestly, right now, if we all pooled our money, I don't know if we would get to a million. But there's a God part in that, right? There was no, no way in our little church's ability to get two acres of property right in the middle of Libertyville. And God gave it. Three acres of property. Oh, I thought it was two. It's three acres of property. Byron just corrected me. You know, like, like right now, we're like, oh, man. Like we don't have enough room in here. We're, we're running. We're, we're bursting at the seams. We, we we don't even have a place for the, the the older kids. If you guys were here before we got this building, it was even worse than that. We had one room, and we had a kitchen. That was it. That was it. One room and a kitchen. One day a week. One day a week. Like one. I mean, like like in for like four hours. 
And if it's wintertime, oh, you better get out of there by noon because the people are coming in for the hot cocoa. Like, that was, like, that's where we were, right? And now here we are, four years later, we got this building. We're like, oh, man, it's still not big enough. So we, we need a God thing to happen, right? We make the assessment, though. We, we need to do our due diligence. Count the cost. What's the material? What's the workload? What's the finances? So that we can do what we're called to do, and God can do his thing. And that's what's going on here with Nehemiah. Is that God's going to do his thing, we're going to do our thing, and it's going to be a success. So we need to have that attitude when we walk into this, right? Because we do have the favor of the king, right? The king of kings, which is, which is, a, is, a, is, a, is a Middle Eastern title. I don't know if you guys know that or not. Like, like Artaxerxes was considered king of kings. Like, that was his title. Like, all of these, all of these emperors, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, uh, Darius I, their title in their world was king of kings, which we would call an emperor, right? Because they're the top king, they're the top ruler of all of these other kingdoms. And so they're the king of kings. And we serve the king of kings. We have his favor. So we approach this difficult thing. There's casting this vision, right? We tell the reality of the situation. For this situation here, we don't have a place for the older kids. We need a bigger building. We need a bigger sanctuary. We need you know, office space, you know? Like we have storage and office and you know, all the stuff kind of jumbled together, like tucked away in closets because we're just trying to make use of the space. In our own lives, it's the same thing. Like what is the reality of the situation? I got baby number three coming. Like the reality of our situation is we had to go get bunk beds so that we just have enough room for a third baby. We have a single bathroom. So now we're trying to manage that because Ellie's potty trained. So now there's three people vying for the bathroom. Within a year, we're going to have four people vying for the bathroom. So Lord, here's our situation, right? We're going to need a bigger house. I, I, I still, like, half of my library is still in a storage unit because the kids need a place to put their toys, and they're using those toys a whole lot more than I'm using some of my books. But I hold on to them because there's a purpose to them, and God's got a future purpose. And so, anyway, my situation, here we are. Here's our assessment. Here's what we need. We'll do our part. God, we need you to do your part. So... That's just a, a personal life example. I mean, like, you could all put an example on that. Like, Lord, this is where we're at. This is what I need. Cast that vision, right? We're casting a vision to the Lord. Like, like, what kind of house we need? What kind of specifics we need? We need to explain how meeting it would be worth the work. So when we cast that vision, is it worth the work, right, to get a closing cost, to go to a house, to, to pay a new mortgage, to have an extra bathroom? I think it is right? <laughs> but to be able to, to couch that and then start the cooperative working process, right? Is it worth it for us at TGP to count that cost and put our hands to work for a new sanctuary so that we can have a dedicated place for kids over the age of 10? A dedicated place for nurseries with mo nursing mothers? Do we have a dedicated place for, for the little kids? Do we have a dedicated place for Bible studies, do we have a dedicated place for a sanctuary where, like, we should be getting new chairs at some point this year where those chairs can be a little bit more comfortably fit so we don't feel like we're on top of each other, right? Like, what do we need? 
What are we spelling out in terms of that? Casting that vision so that we can start that cooperative work. So to, the to-dos with that, to be open and honest with the changes that need to happen. Like X, Y, and Z are necessary changes. If I want to lose weight, I probably need to cut out my flour, I'd probably need to cut out my sugars, and I probably need to cut out diet soda. Right? I mean, like, practically speaking. That's good for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if you, if you just do whole grains, meats, and vegetables, that, I mean, like, you get off of processed foods, right? Like, that's 85% of it. Upfront and honest. Am I willing to count that cost? Am I willing to count the cost of those Cheetos that I eat in the middle of the night in exchange for a smaller waistline? Honest conversation, right? Like, like for me, that hit home, hits home, right? Do, do I want to do I want to pay that price so that I don't have to take a blood pressure pill every night? Yes. Count the cost, right? So I mean, like, there's there's a lot that goes into that. Like, we can bring it home in a thousand different ways. Cast that vision. Oh, I'd love to have a 34-inch waist. It might cost me a fortune in new clothes, but Man, I bet I would probably feel a lot better and have a lot less trouble tying my shoes. You know, just... Are we casting that vision? Are we counting that cost? And then are we willing to be upfront about what it'll take and then solicit the aid of others for that success? Right? Can we work together for that success? For the building, for the weight loss, for the new house, for, for the bathroom, whatever it is. Are we willing to reach out and say, I can't do this on my own. I need help. Because there's a, yes, there's a humiliating part of that. But we talk about humiliation as, as like this shameful thing. But humiliation is, is a humbling, right? Um, so we humble ourselves so that we don't think that we're the end-all be-all that's constantly facing failure because we won't, we're too proud to go out and ask for help, but to be willing to reach out for that. And whenever we make uh, significant changes, this is going to lead us to our last point here, we will find opposition. Like Nehemiah faced opposition from Sanballat, uh, these other guys, Tobiah, and Geshem. Like, they go to build a wall, and these people are like, what do you think you're doing? You know, they're, one, they, these, these were likely the people who were leading raids against Judah, and so now this wall means that they're going to have restricted access. Well, that doesn't go well for their way of doing things. They're probably uh, in, in shady exchanges with the leaders of the city. We find that out a little bit later that there's like actually leaders in the city that are extorting people. And that's going to be disrupted. So their whole power base, their whole like, ability to manipulate Judah is now coming under threat. So this opposition, opposition happens. It's going to rear its head. Whenever we make major changes, there's going to be opposition that arises. And a lot of times it's going to start out with mockery and insults. You're just a little church. What do you need a 5,000 square foot building for? What are you going to do? What do you need that for? You know? Like maybe it's the city council's going to be like, we don't want a new church on that block. Well, we've heard that before. That's nothing new. And yet, God found a way to get us a, a new church, right? So. So there's that opposition, there's that mockery of people who, one, don't want you to succeed, 
or two, would be threatened in some way by your success. So that opposition is going to happen. Nehemiah addressed that with them, and he openly excluded them from the endeavor. He basically said, the, the, people, the Israelites and God are going to build this, not you. So get out of here. We're going to build the welfare of our community, and we're going to succeed because God's with us. Anything that you try to do against it is just going to, to fail. Amen. Now, if you left it, it to Nehemiah 2, you're like, yeah, yeah. But these oppositions are persistent. And we're going to see that as we get through this series, that your opposition isn't just going to go away because you, you shut them up with a one-liner at one time. You know, like it's like most of the people that live on the Internet now think that, that shutting somebody up with a one-liner is like a, a victory. These are the titles, so-and-so crushes so-and-so. Then you watch it, and it's like, there's no crushing going on. It's just, it's just a dumb one-liner that uh, half the time, honestly, it's just so dumb the other person just doesn't know how to respond to it. Like, that's basically what you come across. Don't worry about the dumb one-liners. You worry about that persistence, that faithfulness in the Lord and what he's called us to. Nehemiah excludes them. And you also notice in chapter 2 that they, they try to throw this thing in his face. Like, oh, you're revolting against the king, huh? And so Nehemiah could have very easily said, no, it's the king that sent me here to do this, right? So riding on the coattails of the king, but he was so confident in his position, he didn't even need to drop Artaxerxes' name. Like, no name dropping. He didn't flaunt his favor with the king. He just said, you know what? Israel and God is going to build this place. He had that quiet confidence. He didn't, know, he didn't need to, to flaunt his stuff. He didn't need to show off how superior he was because of his position. He just said, God and the Israelites are going to build this place, and we're going to succeed, and you've got no part in this. So you don't really have to worry about name dropping to make yourself look good in front of opposition. If somebody is opposing you, you don't owe it to them to defend yourself. You don't owe it to them to explain what you're doing or to defend your position. Like, who are they? They're nobody. If God's calling you to do something and they're opposing you, they're opposing God. And who are they to oppose the living God? You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to give ear to what they're saying. You don't have to waste your time trying to convince them in an argument. You just do your thing. God calls you to something, put your hand to the plow, do the work. That opposition will go away. God will see to it that they do not succeed. Amen. So that's what we do. We don't give audience to mockers and insulters when we undertake large challenges or changes. If somebody's not going to help us build what God's called us to do, they have no place in the scope of the project. If you're going to, if you got somebody in your life that's a constant naysayer, I honestly wouldn't even waste my time telling them my ambitions because they're just there to, to beat you down to the naysayer. You just start doing it. You know what? Just start doing it. If they say naysaying, just say, get out of here. I don't need that kind of negativity in my life, right? There's a fun phrase. You don't owe it to them. You don't owe them an explanation. You don't owe them a defense. It, all that does is it takes away from your time and your energy 
that you could be using to build something that God's called you to build. That's it. So put your time and your energy where you're going to do, have the most impact in partnering with God and building the kingdom of heaven and what God's called us to instead of chasing our tail around mockers and insulters and naysayers. That's it. So in conclusion, nice, nice short and, and sweet one today, right? Be honest with our situation and self. Maybe we get a bad medical report. It's, that bad medical report is not the finality. It's not the terminal report. It's an assessment of where you are, where your body is right here and right now. And that is something that you can take to the throne and ask the Lord for supernatural power on, for wisdom on, to make movements. Amen. Right? So that is something. The bad report is not the end. The bad report is an opportunity to reach out to the God who loves us. And an opportunity for us to humble ourselves and, and, and maybe see if there are some changes we can do to our lifestyle to change that report. So there's, there's a lot of wisdom that goes into that. And not just saying like, oh, the big C, right? Everybody's afraid of the word cancer because they think it's just that, that's the end of it. Like, like that's your life sentence. People have recovered from cancer. People have he been healed from cancer. God has healed people from cancer. It's not the end. Honestly, it's not the end until you take your last breath. That's it. I mean, like, as long as you got breath in you, there is something that God can do, and there's something that you can do to build the kingdom of heaven. And if it does take us, you know what? We're moving on to something better anyway, right? So we win-win. So there's that. Just saying. So we'd be honest with our situation. Don't fear the bad report. Use it as a springboard to start assessing what's going on, what needs to be done, how can we partner with God. Determine the scope of the task, whatever it is. If I need to get a new house, maybe I need to look at my wages. Maybe I need to look at how we're dealing with our finances, how we're, how we're using our credit card. Like, how can we make a change happen? How can we call on the Lord with the specifics of what we need so that we can make those requests to the Lord and petition his help in that process. Assess our situation. What needs to be changed, right? Like, what, what needs to be different for things to be a success? Cast that vision. Be able to articulate it. Tell other people, 5,000 square foot, office space, storage space, bigger building that can meet our needs better than the needs we have now. We need classrooms for probably four different age ranges, you know? If we're going to count for the future, then it's not just where we're at now. Like, what are the age ranges going to be in five, seven, ten years? How do we account for that? You know, how do we plan for that growth? How do we plan for that, like, like diversity of, of uh, age groups and, and, and ministries and things like that? Determine, assess that situation, cast that vision, and know that opposition is going to happen, and you don't have to put up with it. Because if God is calling you to something, the opposition doesn't matter. It's just a distraction. And if something like forcibly stops you from being able to go forward with the work, then that becomes God territory. The Lord's calling you to something. He's going to remove those obstacles. So that's Nehemiah chapter 2. Cool. Right? So we cast the vision. We do it. Honest assessment. 
and we go forth with the kingdom of heaven. So for anybody who uh, is listening on a podcast or on, uh, on Zoom or even in here that doesn't know about this stuff and you're like, that's kind of some fun stuff, but you don't know my situation. No, I don't. I don't. But I know a God who does. I know a God who has moved heaven and earth to save every individual who would call on the name of Jesus. And I know a God who's been faithful to me since I was 14 years old, and I'm 42 now. And uh, to quote, I think it was Solomon, I once was young and now I'm old. I'm actually not that old comparatively. But even in my 30 years, never have I seen the Lord forsaking his people and their children begging bread. Like I've seen the Lord provide for me time and time again for 30 plus years. And he does that to the people who call on his name. It's not always comfortable. It's not always I've, everything I've ever asked for. And I've also not gone without. Yeah. And so the Lord is faithful to his people. Yeah. And so if that is something that you desperately need in your life, then I want you to have that conversation with God. And if you don't know how to start, then you can start with these words. Jesus I have heard some wonderful things in this message. And this speaker has talked about a hope and a provision that I want. And he says that you're the way to get that. If that's true, then reveal yourself to me. Speak to me that I may know you're real. And that's it. You leave your heart open to whatever God would say. And so that's, that's it. If you did pray that, if you are hearing this on a podcast, you can always talk to a Christian that you know for more information. If you don't, you're more than welcome to send us an email at info at tgpchicago.org. That's, uh, that's our main line getting into the church is... Uh, Info at tgpchicago.org, and uh, one of our prayer ministers will be glad to get in touch with you and uh, to follow up with some more details. Hello again, this is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you are blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of the Gathering Place financially, I encourage you to use our online giving portal at tgpchicago.org. The portal uses PayPal's secure site, so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. God bless you, and have a great week. Hello again, this is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you are blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of The Gathering Place financially, I encourage you to use our online giving portal at tgpchicago.org. The portal uses PayPal's secure site so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to The Gathering Place podcast. God bless you, 
and have a great week.